Hallelujah. You know, um, each Easter, when you prepare a message for Easter, there's just so many details about the last week of the life of Christ. And so every year, you know, I know I think uh, last year or the year before, I taught on the, uh, the period of time where there was complete darkness and talked about Jesus descending into hell and what happened um, after his death and uh, previous to his resurrection, you know, all that period of time in between, what was he doing, what was happening. Um, I've spent time on the crucifixion, uh, spent time on the uh, Roman authorities and uh, what they put Jesus through in the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Uh, So many different details um, of that last week. I spent last year, I believe, talking about um, the psalm, uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. And uh, letting you know that that's specifically about Palm Sunday. Because there were so many thousands of days that it was prophesied. And Jesus walked into town on the very day that it was prophesied. And so there are many facets of that last week. And I'm going to give you one that maybe you haven't heard preached on before. You have heard about the Roman trial... And Pontius Pilate um, overseeing that trial. And there was the scourging, there was the beatings, there was the, you know, um, all the way up to the crucifixion where they executed the judgment um, that they had um, placed upon him. But one of the things that we don't hear a whole lot of is the religious trial that Jesus had. And so there was a procedure that was in place in the Sanhedrin with the Jewish people, uh, mostly driven by the Pharisees and the scribes, and they had a process in place. And how many remember when you were at the Roman trial, the Jews, uh, the religious leaders of their day, were yelling, execute him. They were saying, crucify him. And in order for them to get to that period of time, It was unlawful for them to just do that. There was a religious trial that was going on during the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's very important to understand what was in their mind when they were yelling, crucify him. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And the title of my message is, We Are Witnesses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. And I just pray that you speak clearly, Lord. Uh, move me out of the way, Lord God, and don't let them see me, but let them see you, Lord God. Speak as an um, Spirit of God, just speak clearly through me. Take me out of the way, Lord. In your name I pray. And everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. We are witnesses. One thing I've noticed from the years of being in ministry and celebrating Resurrection Sunday, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, is we have a lot of witnesses. We have a lot of people when we come into the house of the Lord, and rightfully so, um, we recognize the fact that the God of heaven, and just let this sink into your mind a little bit, the God of heaven, to show his love for us, decided before the foundation of the world 
that I would come and suffer the worst beating anybody has ever had on behalf of you to show you not only am I a just God, but the God of heaven loves you too, but still gives us the freedom to reject or accept. And by the time this, everything was finished and everything was done, the Bible says um, that Jesus Christ um, came into this earth and it said God was with us when he came. How many know that? God was with us, and by the time God was done being with us, he was on a tree, murdered, pinned to a tree, an innocent man, and that was God that we did that to. God was among us, he was like us, he was in flesh like us, and by the time it was done, we put him to death on a cross, an innocent man. And that... Man, Christ Jesus, that was God and was pinned to that tree and died a crucifixion, which is the worst death you could possibly die. He descended into hell, took the keys of death and hell, resurrected, and he's awaiting a day where all of us have to give account to him. He's the God over all of heaven, all of earth, everything above, everything below, everything that's on it. And church, can I tell you something? We're spending so much time trying to make sinners comfortable in their sin. And what we should be doing is getting them ready to give an account before the Lord. Because it doesn't matter how good you feel about your sins. Your sins nailed them to the cross. And my mission is to get you ready to stand before Christ If you're in this house today and you're not a worshiper of Jesus Christ, that is not going to be a very good meeting. And it doesn't matter whether you are related to somebody that loves the Lord or if you go to church or whatever it is, if you're not a worshiper of Jesus Christ as God, you're in trouble. And church, my job is not to make you feel better about your sin. Your sin pinned him on the cross. And you see Christians, I see it every day. Man, we got to make people feel comfortable with their sins. And see, that's not my job. My job is to get you ready to stand before this person that we nailed on a cross. And now he's ready to judge the living and the dead. Let that sink in. Because if we don't let that sink in, we're going to lose our mission. We're going to lose our... Our purpose on this earth as Christians is to get people ready, to get the bride ready to stand before Christ the judge. How many know he is a judge? And so that's what was happening on that cross when he died, was he was taking authority over everything. And if you read the book of Revelation, you realize that uh, it's not pleasant. Uh, It says his vesture is like one who is dipped in blood. He's going to execute judgment on the world. Why? Because he offered himself as a gift, a free gift of salvation. And anybody not accepting the gift, um, it's, not, it's not good for you. It's terrible. And you say, well, for, Jesus, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But very few ever quote the next verse. 
that if we can if we reject him that we will be condemned and church that's serious business today and so i want to talk about these witnesses that witnessed miracles that only the messiah could do and every year we uh, observe easter or we observe resurrection whatever name you use how many of you know that um, observing doesn't necessarily mean anything? I mean, I observe a lot of things, okay? I get up in the morning and I observe things, all right? We observe this as a holiday, but we've got to make sure that as we observe to recognize that we are witnesses to His deity. And if we don't recognize that and bow your knee to Him. The Bible says that a day is coming when every person living and dead will bow their knee to Him. And some will bow their knee, but they will be condemned, but they'll still beg of Him. And you know, I know it sounds scary, but the thing is, today I'm offering the free gift. Um, I had, uh, in the last week... Probably three or four different instances where a young person lost their life and somebody has told me about it and it was instant. And so, church, we're not going to be here forever. We not, may not even be here the next moment. And if I don't do what God has called me to do and prepare you to be accountable to Him, remember, if you're not a worshiper, you may not be serving the living God. And I hate to be that harsh, but I want everybody to recognize what, what Resurrection Weekend is. Um, there were, in fact, let me read the scripture here, Luke 17, 11. I'm going to end up at this place because it's a culmination of the religious trial of Jesus by the Pharisees and the scribes in the Sanhedrin. Luke 17, verse 11, it says, Now on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now this particular story, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, okay? He had been dead for four days. And so he had just done this. He's preparing to enter Jerusalem. And this is one of the last events before he enters um, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and finishes the last week of his life. And so he's just left raising Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, and it says he's on his way to Jerusalem, but he kind of takes a little course around Jerusalem because it's not time yet. He has to die on Passover Sunday, or Passover day, that Friday, and, um, and so everything is uh, scheduled like clockwork. And so in the interim between... Um, Palm Sunday and the healing of Lazarus, the raising from the dead. Uh, he's just wandering around here. It says he's on the border. On his way to Jerusalem, he traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. He was going into a village, and ten men who had leprosy met him. And they, were at a, they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity or have mercy on us. Now, this scene had to be very dramatic. Jesus... Uh, comes upon a city and the lepers were so um, 
lepers were not able to be among the people. They were not allowed to be in a walled city. They weren't allowed to be in the synagogue. They had to sit at a distance and cry. And in order for them to be at this level where they're separated from society, uh, they would have been gruesome and deformed probably. Uh, Their vocal cords would have dried out and they would have even sounded different than everybody. Their voices would have been very deep and raspy and for them to cry out would have been a grotesque sound. And so Jesus is walking along and he runs into the ten lepers. And they said, have pity on us. When, When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And they went and they were cleansed. One of them when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all the ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now a few things I want you to notice here. Uh, Jesus really doesn't make a very dramatic healing here. He doesn't go over and lay his hands on him. He doesn't really go through a, um, a, a prescribed procedure. He just says, hey, go show yourself to the priest. And as they went that direction, they were all healed. And as they were heading that direction, the one guy recognized he was healed and came back and bowed at his feet and began to worship him as God. And the other nine, uh, just by the insinuation of the story, they were Jewish. And the one was a Samaritan. He's the only one that came back and worshiped him as God. And he said, your faith has made you whole. Now the interesting thing is they were already healed. And so the language there is that he trusted him for salvation. So ten were there. But one received salvation, all ten received healing. Isn't that interesting? Well, let's go back and let's look at what is called the the Messiah miracles. Okay, and this is something that uh, maybe you've not heard before. But the um, there was a classification of miracles among the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, and ancient Jewish teaching that had been well established before Jesus had come. Now I want you to imagine if you were growing up as a Jewish child and you were listening to this teaching. One, the teaching was that the first classification of miracles that you will see are what's called general miracles. And general miracles mean that anybody under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you could see these miracles occur. Okay, there are miracles that occur, but... They're general. They're they're miracles that we've seen among normal people. And then they had a second classification, very small list, and they said these are called the Messiah miracles. And so when you see the Messiah miracles, and they had taught well before Jesus' time that there were three Messiah miracles, and if you see them, know that this is the Messiah. So imagine in your Jewish culture you had always heard this, okay? So in Luke chapter 5, the first of the Messiah miracles happens. And um, this particular miracle is called the healing of the leper. Okay, and you say, well, well, well Jesus did a lot of things, you know. Um, surely he healed lepers and you know, did all these different things. But to the Jewish mind, 
When they heard the healing of a leper, it was shocking. It was a whole different level of interest when they heard the healing of the leper because it was the first Messiah miracle. And here's the thing. Nobody in the history of Israel had been healed of leprosy. It was considered incurable. And when you had it, it was grotesque. It's been mostly, um, mostly we're able to deal with leprosy today, but back then it was incurable. And it was grotesque. You would literally have no feeling in your, your, your limbs and your um, extremities, and, and you would bump them around on things, and you'd damage them, and literally you would tear yourself apart because you were numb. And there was no cure. You were separated from society. You were called the living dead. Every time somebody walked near you, you had to yell, unclean. And by the way, this is a perfect picture of our sinful nature. And it's incurable. And so Jesus, in Luke chapter 5, in fact, it's um, in Luke chapter five seventeen. now it's found in Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 2, and Luke chapter 5. But Luke is a physician. So because he's a doctor, everywhere that Luke goes, he gives a different definition of everything that's happening. He gives very precise medical language. And he says, it came to pass on one of those days, this is Luke five seventeen. he says that he was teaching and there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by. Hold on, I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. Okay, Luke chapter 5, verse 12. I'm sorry, somebody said that. There was a man full of leprosy and Luke describes it as fully developed which meant the man wouldn't live very long, okay? The man was fully given over to leprosy. He was completely covered with leprosy. And so this was a severe case. The probably He probably wouldn't live much longer. And he comes to the Lord and he says, If you will, make me clean. And it says, Straightway or immediately the leprosy departed from him. Now there had never been a healing of leprosy since the Mosaic law had came about. So that means that there were regulations in Leviticus 13 and 14 for the healing of a leper. But from the time of the Mosaic law till this man was healed, nobody had ever uh, came to the priesthood and said, I've been healed of leprosy. Uh, There were two cases that you see in the Old Testament. Um, You see Miriam, but the law had not came yet with Miriam. It hadn't been given yet. And then you see a Syrian who was healed of leprosy. And then you see a minor case in a court official. But the Jews will tell you from the time of the Mosaic law until now, nobody had ever came to fulfill the healing of a leper. And so when they found this to be the case that a leper was healed, it caused a really big commotion. Because in order for a person, if they were healed of a a leprosy, listen to this. They had to do four different things. First, first thing they had to do was they had to assure that the person really was a leper. So they had to get witnesses from everybody that this person truly was eaten up with leprosy, which he was. Um, and then they had to assure without a doubt that he was cured of the leprosy. And that's the second step. And then they found that out that he was completely... Can you imagine your skin rotting off and then all of a sudden you got... 
very soft, supple skin, and you're ready to live life, and you're back in business as far as being around people. And then, if they were truly cured of the leprosy, they wanted to know who, who cured it. How was he cured? And so, Jesus finds one man at the beginning of his ministry, just finished the Sermon on the Mount, walks down, and it's no accident, he sees a leper that's fully eaten up. And so Jesus says, tell no one, go show yourself to the priest. Now they got a problem because they've never had anybody come healed of leprosy. And so they confirm the three items. And then the first thing they have to do, they have to offer a couple of birds. Okay, Then they have to do a trespass offering, a sin offering, a burnt offering, a meal offering. Then they have to apply the anointing of, of the blood on the healed leper. And then they have to anoint him with oil. Quite a process. Remember, the sacrifices were still going on while Jesus' ministry was occurring. And you say, well, why is this a big deal? Because now they have to send out an official delegation to investigate. They have to send an official delegation because it looks like we have a Messiah because nobody has ever done the Messiah miracle. And so the next thing you see is Jesus departs very quickly. He goes up into the mountain to pray, the same mountains where he fasted and prayed and was tempted by Satan. Now he's back in there and he's praying because he knows he just did something. He knows the entire Sanhedrin is going to come together now and figure out if he's a Messiah. Because every time there's a messianic claim, does everybody know what a Messiah is? That means from the very beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, it was prophesied that God would come to earth. And his name would be the Messiah And he would be the one that would die for the sins of the people. He'd give himself to show the people how much he loved them by sacrificing his own self. That's the Messiah. And so they had been waiting for him for thousands of years. And now the first Messiah miracle happens. There were other miracles. In fact, before the leper came, uh, he was healing those. um, uh, There were demons that were crying out saying, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. And he was telling them to shut up. To be quiet, don't tell them yet. The, the demons actually know who he is. The people don't know yet. But the demons are crying out. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's doing all these things on the way. And then he sees this man eaten up with leprosy. And he says, go show yourself to them. And what it meant was the leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin. He goes back. The official delegation comes. In fact, when he comes down from the mountain, he's in Galilee, but he actually has a delegation of Pharisees and scribes from all over the country. It says they're from Judea, they're from uh, Galilee, they're from all over the country, religious leaders assembled to wait for him to come back. Now, isn't that amazing? There's a convention for Jesus And they're going to do the first stage of the messianic observation. And the first stage is we listen to what he says, we watch what he does, and we determine is this a legitimate messianic person. And so the trial has begun. And so when he comes back, there's so many religious leaders there that you can't even walk in the door. In fact, they have to drop a man from the ceiling 
that's a paralyzed man his whole life. And so they drop him through the ceiling, four men, and they drop him down. And, and Jesus looks at him, and you would think Jesus would just heal him. But you know what he does? He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, they're there for observation. The first stage, they can't even talk. They just have to observe. They're not allowed to ask questions or anything. They're just allowed to observe. So Jesus, knowing why they're there because of the leper, he says, um, your sins are forgiven. And they're thinking to themselves, only God can forgive sins. How dare he say that? He's the Messiah, though. He's showing them, I'm the Messiah. I forgave this man's sins. And then they're kind of looking around. He knows their heart, and he said, What's easier, for me to say your sins are forgiven or to heal him of his paralyzed condition? And he gave the obvious answer. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to heal this man. So he said, rise up, grab your bed and walk. And so, just remember, the religious leaders now, we're only going through the religious trial, okay? They had to go back and report, is he a legitimate messiah? Okay, he's healed a leper, which has never happened. Fully consumed leper. He's already cast out demons, all kinds of diverse miracles. In chapter 4, he's done all these miracles. Demons are crying out, you're the one, you're the one. He's saying, be quiet, don't tell them. You know, they don't know yet. And so they run back to uh, Jerusalem, to the Sanhedrin, and they're saying, yeah, he's definitely legitimate. So now they go to the next phase, and the next phase is the phase of interrogation. And so in the next phase, they're allowed to ask questions. They're allowed to um, talk to Jesus and, and criticize Him, critique Him, uh, whatever they need to do. And so now they go to the second messianic miracle. This is the Messiah miracle number two. Uh, they taught three different ones, and this is the second one. Um, the Jews had known people that cast out demons. There were people that had, they had a procedure that they would cast out demons. And the procedure was that you could ask the demon who they were. The demon would state their name and you could cast the demon out. But there was a certain kind of demon that was not able to be cast out. And nobody had ever been able to cast out the demon that is a dumb demon. A dumb spirit. And so they had always been taught in the, in the synagogue that when the Messiah comes, he will perform this miracle. Now he had already cast out demons and nobody thought anything of it. But then the second Messiah miracle is in Mark chapter 3, 21. It's also in Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 3. These just elicit a different response and you don't really understand why are they reacting so differently to this one miracle. And it's because it's the second Messiah miracle. And it says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd was gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, He is out of his mind. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem. Now why do you think they came down from Jerusalem? It's because they heard of the Messiah miracle. So here they are, and they're so crowded in there. It says, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. 
How can Satan drive out Satan? And I actually missed the miracle here. Oh. Well, I did bad in my notes. Let me tell you what happened. Jesus came down and there was a spirit that was a dumb spirit. He was deaf and dumb. And so when you have a deaf and dumb spirit, he doesn't even know his name. Okay? And Jesus came and there was this deaf and dumb spirit and Jesus cast the spirit out. And uh, so later, um, that was the second Messiah miracle. So they went back and reported. They said, hey, he did the second thing, which he cast out a deaf and a dumb spirit, which has never happened. Nobody's ever cast out a deaf or a dumb spirit. And so they went back and reported it. And then they came back again. And while Jesus was gone, they accused him of casting out the demon by Beelzebub. And this is when Jesus rejected the Jewish nation. Jesus actually said that is a unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people look at that sin as being an individual sin, but that sin is this national sin that we've seen the second messianic miracle and we attribute it to Beelzebub instead of Christ, the Son of the living God. And so now he pronounces it's unforgivable because that nation will now have a death sentence on it because they rejected the Messiah. And so now they're going to be destroyed, and they were destroyed several years later, uh, according to the prophecy that Jesus prophesied upon the nation. Uh, So the second miracle, he's away again, and they come back and they say, well, let's see if his disciples can cast out a deaf and dumb spirit. So they were instigating the situation when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples. They come down and they find the other nine disciples are with a deaf and dumb spirit, and the scribes and Pharisees are trying to see if they can cast him out. They can't. That's a messianic miracle that happened. The Messiah could cast it out. And so they ask him, they say, why can we not cast this one out, God? Jesus, why can't we cast this out? Why? And the Pharisees wanted to see if they did it by the same power he did it. Like if it was a trick or if it was by Satan or what means they would cast out the deaf and dumb spirit. And Jesus immediately cast the Spirit out and He said, this one only comes by prayer and fasting. It's a different kind. So the second messianic miracle happens. Then there's a third one that they taught. All through the years, they taught a third Messiah miracle. And the miracle was there had been people that had been healed of blindness, but there had never been anybody healed from blindness from birth. And so Jesus in John chapter 9 heals a man that had been blind from birth. And so this particular um, miracle, like I said, it just has a different impact on the people because they'd been taught their whole life that only the Messiah would come and heal people blind from birth. And so he performs the miracle and guess what you find? You find another religious trial. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees come down, they find the man, and they ask him, they begin to interrogate him and his parents in a trial. And so they ask the man, what happened? How are you able to see? And as he's walking through the courtyard, people are looking at him, and they're saying, I think that's him. I think that's the one that's always been blind. Some said, yeah, that's him, and some said, I don't think that's him. Anyway, they brought him in. And they said, what happened? And he said, Jesus made a 
spittle and mud out of dirt. He put it on my eyes. I never seen him. And he told me to go wash and I would be made, my blind, my sight would be restored. Or I would actually have sight because born from birth. So anyway, he goes back. They interrogate him. They say, well, maybe this isn't the blind man. So they bring his parents in. His parents said, no, that's him. Yeah, he's been blind since birth. They said, well, what happened? They said, ask him. He's of age. They were afraid they were going to be arrested. They bring him in. He says, um, they said, glorify God now and say that he's a sinner. And he said, no, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. He said, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And so because of the fact that he glorified Jesus Christ, he was kicked out forever from the synagogue. And what's really cool is Jesus finds him sitting somewhere. At the end of the chapter, he sees him sitting and he says, hey, what happened? He's like, that. you know, they kicked me out. And he says, do you believe on the Son of Man? He goes, I don't know about the Son of Man. He goes, you see him now. This is the one that healed you of the blindness. And he began to worship God and bow down. And you say, well, man, you see people that are receiving him as God, but the religious people still haven't received him as God. Now, here's the amazing thing I wanted to get to. Jesus, in Luke chapter 17 He healed, to start his ministry, he healed the leper, and that caused a major stir among the Sanhedrin because of the Messiah miracle. Now he raises Lazarus from the dead, and he waited four days because three days was the days that the Sanhedrin said it's impossible for a person to be resuscitated. It's a resurrection after three days. So Jesus intentionally waits four days. Can you imagine? In fact, uh, Lazarus' sister Martha was begging him, don't roll that stone away. You don't want to do that. He stinks. He's been dead for four days. Don't roll it open. Jesus raises a man from the dead on his way to the cross. And you know what the religious Sanhedrin did? They sentenced him to death. There was a death sentence that was given by the Sanhedrin after the raising of Lazarus. They said to themselves, everybody's going to believe on his name if we don't do something about it. And they threatened to kill Lazarus. That's pretty bad. You're threatened to kill a man that was just resurrected from the dead because they will believe on Jesus. You understand how they began to reject the Messiah? They're observing Passover. The Passover lamb is here. They're just watching it from a distance. But they won't bow their stinking knee and worship Jesus Christ as Lord. And how many times in churches across America we're celebrating Easter, we're celebrating Resurrection Sunday, and we want to talk about all the things that He's done for us. How about start talking about what we're going to do for Him? How about talking about reciprocating a little bit back toward Him because He died for you, He gave everything for you, and we sit around and we want to observe Easter. It's time to get off our butts and do something for the Lord God, the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth. It's time to quit playing games. It's time to quit playing with sin. It's time to get serious. Church, I believe so much that He is God that came on this earth and died for me. I believe it in so much that I'm ready to die for it. That I want to go to the end of this life 
And they're going to have to pry that sword from my hand. Because I'm going to live for him every day of my life. I'm not just going to observe Easter. I'm not going to go crack open a few eggs with some dollars in it. Okay, I'm going to live for the living God who gave everything for me. And I'm going to give everything back to him. And so Jesus intentionally... This is part of his ministry. He's raised a man from the dead. There's no doubt that he's God. There's no doubt that he's the Messiah. And there's no doubt what their true colors are because they're going to put to death Lazarus and put to death Jesus because of a miracle that proves he's God. And so he goes, and not only was the messianic miracle big with the one man that was healed of leprosy, they had eight days of sacrifices they had to do at the Sanhedrin in the temple. Now Jesus finds ten of them. And it's almost like a sense of humor. Because he finds ten lepers that are completely eaten up, separated from society, crying out. And he looks at them and says, yeah, go show yourself to the temple. They'll they'll like this. Not only did I do the Messiah miracle, I did it ten times over just to make sure you know that I'm him. I raised a man from the dead... Ten lepers are being sent back to you. None of, no, nobody had ever used, just, just think of this. Nobody had ever went through those sacrifices for a, a leper that had been healed. And now they have to do it ten times, and Jesus is about to enter his final week. It says early in Acts, which is only weeks after the crucifixion, it says that many priests became Christians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Read into that. When you have ten lepers that you have to literally medically examine, you have to give all those sacrifices, anoint them with blood, anoint them with oil. You have to cleanse them in the ceremonial procedure. Yeah, I think it's an understatement that a lot of the priests became Christians. Because they had seen so many signs. But here's the thing that amazes me. When you're a leper... Your life is over. Your life is over. You're yelling when anybody gets close unclean. Nobody can be close to you. You can't enter society. You can't see your family. You're the living dead. And you would think if somebody completely restored you of an incurable disease, that you'd bow down and worship him. And Jesus said nine Jewish men were completely healed of leprosy. As soon as they walked that direction, they were healed. And only one man stopped and said, wait a minute, there's only one person that can cure a leper, and that's God. That's the Messiah who is God. The Samaritan, nine Jewish men who had been raised their whole life to understand only the Messiah could perform that miracle, Only one of them stopped and said, this is God. And while they were running that direction, he stopped the moment he got healed and he ran back and bowed at his feet. And Jesus accepted the worship as the living God. And he came back and he bowed at his feet and he said, you are, and he said, your faith has made you saved. And church, can I tell you something? Some of you, I've watched you. You wouldn't give God a moment of your time. 
You're so proud you can't raise your hands and worship Him. You're ashamed to say His name. And I'm telling you today, the observance of Resurrection Sunday isn't about watching what He did. What He did has already been determined. What He did has already been spoken from the ends of the earth. The question of Resurrection Day is what are you going to do? Are you going to continue to live your life and never worship the living God like the nine? Jesus said, where did the nine go? Look at what I've done for them. You say, well, God hasn't done anything for me. You wouldn't be breathing right now if God didn't bless you. We wouldn't enjoy the beautiful day that we have right now if God didn't bless us. Every good thing on this earth is from God. And to not raise your hand and worship Him and bow your knee to Him is the ultimate sin. Resurrection Day isn't about what He did. It's about how you react to what He did. If you're just observing what He did, what difference does it make in your life? What God wants to know is what are you going to do with it? Are you going to live your life for Him or are you just going to observe it? And I challenge you today. Some of you have never worshipped before. And I'm telling you, be like that person. that If you want to cause... You want a cause to live for? Live for Christ. That's the only cause that matters. You say, well, I collect antiques. Wow. You can collect antiques. All right, yeah, but I'm, into, I'm really into my sports team. Okay, well, that's a good cause to live for. Yeah, have your sports team, that's fine. But have Jesus Christ should be the cause of your life. You should live your life. If I go right now, at this moment, if I were to die, I I would know that I serve God with all of my heart. Some of you in this room cannot say that. You can't die at this moment and say, you know what, I gave my life to the one who died for me. God's crying out today. He's crying out to you saying, man, you can do this. I remember the first time I walked in church and raised my hands. You know, that's probably the, one of the biggest battles I've ever had as a Christian. I walked in and I was like, you know what? I've never done this before. People are going to laugh because I've never done it before. And here goes, you know, I give up God. I, I give up myself. I give up my pride. And I raised them. And you know what? A freedom came over me. It was like, you know what? I don't care what people think about me anymore. All I care about is what He thinks about me. Right? Worship team, if you'd come up. Church, the title of my message was, We Are Witnesses. We are witnesses. Either He is God, and He did die for you, and you either accept Him, or you reject Him. You worship Him, or you walk away and just say, You know what, it's not worth it. And God's calling out today. Stand to your feet. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now, Lord. Lord, if we could just stand right now in your presence, Lord God. and uh, Lord, you made a path for us, Lord God. You said, seek the Lord while he may be found. And Lord, there is a path that you have made through your death and resurrection It's a path to your throne, Lord God, and we can can be pleasing to you, Lord. You could be our friend. 
Father, we can be close to you, but Lord, we can also go the other way, Lord. I just pray right now, Lord, that your spirit would, oh, Father, just um, work on hearts. Lord, that we would accept your sacrifice and not just observe it. Lord, bless us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. If you just keep your eyes closed, I just want to ask you. If you've never given your heart to the Lord, we're going to take communion. One of the things it says in communion is, if your heart is right with the Lord, take communion. But it says you need to examine your hearts because if your heart is not right with God, if you're not a worshiper of God, it says you're bringing judgment upon yourself. Christ died so that we could worship Him. I mean, know that. Christ died so we could worship Him. We could love Him so we could know Him. So we're not uh, against Him. We're with Him. And so this offer, you only get so many of these in your lifetime. Everybody know that? You only get so many. You never know when the last one is. Isn't it better to know the Lord, love the Lord, Raise your hands and worship the Lord. Bow your knee to Jesus Christ. I'm just asking you today, if that's you, you've never given your heart to the Lord, let me just see your hand. I'm not going to call you up here. Just let me see your hand. I've never given my heart to the Lord, but man, I'd like to make it right. Anybody here, you've never given your heart to the Lord? Say, man, I want to do it now. I want to learn how to worship Him. I want to get back to worshiping Him. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We're going to go into a time of worship here, and then we're going to take communion. But I just want you to spend some time with the Lord today. Don't just be an observer of a holiday, but be a participator. Participate in His death. You know, follow Jesus into His death. and Just just participate and not be an observer. Hallelujah. done it so at the top of your uh, cup there's a little cellophane that you will open up and it has the, the bread in it or the wafer and then after we open that up you have the regular foil pack that you'll open up and, and we will take this together I really appreciate Pastor Chad's messages sometimes sometimes we just go through our day and we take for granted what Christ did for us we, uh, we remember that he died for our sins, but we forget that he resurrected and he wanted us to live with him. And he said whenever they took the last supper, whenever they, they ate together on that very last night, he said he wouldn't do it again until he was one with us. And he told us to do it in remembrance of him. 
that's why we do communion. Because Jesus wanted a relationship with us. He did everything possible to make that happen. Nailed to a cross. And figured. And then he was stabbed. He did that for us. Because he did that. And because after that, he was resurrected. He was made whole. We get to have this relationship with him to where we commute with him. Nobody else would ever do that. And he did it before you were even born. I don't care if you're married. I don't care how great your parents were, how great your children are. Nobody would do what Jesus did for you. Nobody. And as Pastor Chad said, we take that for granted sometimes. We live as if we're still in that tomb dead with him. Like he never rose. Like, we don't owe him anything. We're like, oh, he already took care of everything. I don't have to worry about anything. You know what? He didn't tell you you had to go do something for him. But if we've tr- truly been changed and we're truly communing with Christ, we would want it. There's nothing we would want more than to serve the greatest God to ever live. The only God to ever live. So as we go through communion... Take the bread. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father God, we thank you for what you did for us. Jesus, we thank you that you made that ultimate sacrifice just to be one with us. It was an act of grace. It was an act of love. It was something we can never repay you, Lord. And you did it anyway. Thank you for all you do for us, Lord. We take this bread in remembrance of what you did. new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you yet again that you uh, allowed your blood to be poured out, Lord, to cover our sins. Give us unity back with you give us a right relationship. He did it all because of your love for us and how much you wanted that right relationship with us. We thank you, Lord. 
will never forget. So we take this cup in the of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This will um, this will make some interesting conversations today around the dinner table. <laughs> uh, things like this don't happen very often, and, and I'm going to read a uh, I'm going to read a letter from an anonymous person that wishes to remain anonymous. It says, "I have been blessed." with the opportunity and privilege of handling and distributing a portion of God's money for the benefit of Wellspring Church and advance His kingdom. With the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which I can affirm this to be very, very true, the Holy Spirit purely has guided in this situation. The guidance of the Holy Spirit... It says, a church on the west side of Evansville has been brought to my attention. This church is available with many furnishings already in place. We're capable of having a worship service in this building as little as 45 days after signing a purchase agreement. With Pastor Chad's approval, I've taken upon myself to get an inspection of the building. I've received the inspection reports on two of the buildings. Currently waiting on a fourth contractor's estimates for work that should be completed in the mating building for inspection recommendations. A large portion of the purchase price and repairs have been paid for the, with this gift. A loan would be required, but would be guaranteed with a personal signer if needed. I've been in contact with a bank that handles church financing, and they said a personal guarantee would not be necessary because of the amount already being invested in the property with the purchase. The anonymous donation wishes to remain anonymous with approval of the wellspring existing board i would be more than happy to continue to work it with the realtor on this property at berean bible church and the contractors to make this evansville campus for wellspring church now let me explain i was approached by an anonymous person led by the holy spirit and they are donating three hundred thousand dollars to this church and the money, just so I, in fact, this is my, this is going to blow you away. You're going to sit around today and wonder how the, God's going to work this out. Um, but it was given in the form of real estate. So this Berean Bible Church is on St. Joe near McDonald's over off of, uh, in fact, uh, Ryan, where are you at? Shelly. It's, uh, no, it's not Columbia. It's uh Delaware and 12th Street. It's right, it's a couple blocks from your, your restaurant. <laughs> yeah. 
But this this building listed at three hundred and ninety thousand dollars. It started at three ninety five, I believe. And basically, we're getting a three hundred thousand dollar donation to pay for the building. Uh, we will get two hundred put on the building. One hundred would be there for repairs. If they're going to fix the roof, they're going to fix all the heating and air, all the electrical, fix everything and make it new. And church, this um, is going to be an addition to what Henderson, Kentucky. So this, you say, well, how does this impact Henderson? The way it impacts Henderson is we've never had assets as a church. And so we're not able to do the things that God's calling us to do in Henderson. Now we have the financial ability to do everything we want to do in Henderson. And we have been preparing since the beginning of this church. If you've ever spent any time with me at all, everything I've ever said is, when you have a healthy church, you're raising up ministers, and you're opening new campuses. And God has given us the resources to throw our net into another community in Evansville. And I've raised up six ministers already, and I've got another 20 in training. You say, how are we going to do it? Don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit's all over this thing. And God has given us assets to build this church the way God wants us to build this church. And God has given us assets to build a whole new work in a very populated neighborhood that how many know need the Lord? (laughs) And so God has also, through this donation given us the ability and it's going to progress through the board and you're going to have to approve it but given us the ability allow me to be a full-time pastor and allow eddie to be a full-time pastor with me so church you'd have no idea how much impact this is going to be in this church and so you just can't imagine how it's going to impact us and uh and church we're in a position to really reach the community Everything is going to be done on this building, and as long as we approve it, uh, it's going to open up about the time COVID restrictions are gone. So praise the Lord. Isn't the Lord good? Isn't it amazing that the Lord... Um, and with earnest money from the anonymous donor and my signature, we signed a purchase agreement. And all that purchase agreement does is gives us time to talk about it and decide whether we want to do it. Uh, Two hundred thousand is on the building. One hundred thousand dollars is set aside for the repairs of the building. There'll be about a hundred thousand dollar mortgage, but we have a. There is a. Um, what do you call it a uh, property parsonage? There's a parsonage and a two car garage on the property, and that rents for about eight hundred to thousand dollars a month. So it will pay our mortgage. So basically, we're going in without any, we're going to have all the functional parts of the building are going to be new. It's going to be zoned heat and air. It's got a sanctuary that holds 300. And so over the next several days, we'll start kind of unveiling it and having conversations about it. But God has been good to us. I mean, no, God has been good to this church. Uh, But I don't want anybody to think either that I have $300,000 in the bank because I don't. It's in real estate. God's given us an ability to have assets and reach Praise the Lord. How many are ready to minister? How many are ready to get out on the streets and start building churches? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And I'll tell you something. When I told Eddie and I told David, the only two that uh, were aware of the situation, 
their mouths hit the table. And it took them about a week to sort it out. And they were thrilled after a week. But it's just so much to take in. Like I said, you're going to be talking around your tables a lot today. But God has done an amazing thing for this church. So let's praise Him. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, you're so good to us, Lord. Your eyes have been upon us, Lord. Lord, you blessed us to be a blessing. Lord, and I pray right now that this church would be a blessing. We would be unified, Lord God, in reaching the lost, Lord God. Father, you have met vision with resources, Lord. We thank you for that. Oh, Lord, do a mighty work in this church, Lord. Oh, Father, let us set the enemy to flight. Let us preach your gospel, Lord God, to the ends. Hallelujah. Bless us. Thank you this day, Lord. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice, Lord. The loving kindness you've shown us, Lord. Oh, hallelujah, Lord. We bless you today, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.